Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of Jeremiah. We are in Jeremiah chapter 30 and 31 tonight. If you need a Bible, Richard's up. Just raise your hand and we'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Jeremiah chapter 30 and 31 tonight. I hear music downstairs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together, this opportunity that you've given to us to open up your word and know, Lord, that it is not wasted time. It's precious time, Lord, that we spend in your presence Lord, speak to our hearts tonight. Give us not only information, but application in our lives that would, uh, Lord, draw us closer into our relationship with you, Lord. Uh, give us hope, Lord. Uh, I know there's a lot of hope in these chapters we're going to look at tonight, Lord. And just praise you for that and pray that you'd bless our time together. Bless the kids downstairs, Lord, as I hear them worshiping you, Lord. And uh, bless uh, the teachers downstairs. Uh, speak through them. We just commit our night to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So often in the book of Jeremiah, it's doom and, and gloom. It's doom and, and judgment. But every now and then, as I've shared before, you know, we get a verse or a few verses that are like the rain clouds parting and the sun shining through the, with the blue sky, you know, verses. Well, here, really in chapters 30 through 33, we might call them the blue sky chapters. Chapters 30 through 33 are the most hopeful four chapters in all of the prophecies of Jeremiah. Because they focus, excuse me, <coughs> because they focus on the bigger picture of the mission of the Jews and, and the certainty of the completion of their mission thanks to the intervention of God. Now, how is that hopeful for us? Well, uh, if or when the days of doom set in for us, we too, we need to look beyond them and we need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we get to the blue skies, you know, let's talk about the rain clouds a little bit. What's been going on? Imagine that you haven't left this city for 18 months. Your pantry is empty. When the kids take a bath, you notice their ribs are showing. Disease in the city is epidemic. Garbage is piling up in the streets. The rats are out of control. There's a stench in the air that you can't get away from. And there's a foreign army camped outside the walls of the city. And these, this foreign army, the Babylonians, they have a, a ruthless reputation. They've toppled other cities. Every day they're, they're launching their taunts and their, their threats. And you can see them just preparing for this one big attack. And every time you go to the temple to pray and cry to God for help, the prophets tell you, oh, everything's okay, you know, they keep promising God's going to deliver the city. And Jeremiah is saying, just go to Babylon, accept what the Lord is doing, and, and you know, you're kind of in the middle and going, How, where, how's this going to end? That's the situation facing the inhabitants of Jerusalem. These were the darkest days Judah had seen since Egyptian slavery. The people, they were scared. They're shaken. Jeremiah had the painstaking task, really, of overseeing their final days, and he pleaded for the king to surrender. Yet, in the nation's darkest hour, God gave Jeremiah their brightest hope. Though the nation had failed to obey the covenant that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, God was willing to strike a new covenant. God was not done with the Jewish people. There's hope. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, Think no more of Jeremiah as exclusively the weeping prophet, for the flashes of his delight make the night of his sorrow brilliant 
with an aurora of heavenly brilliance. Look at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. So this is really a, a book within a book in chapters 30 through 33. It's called the book of consolation. People have been given given it a name. And just before the nation of Judah goes to do its final moments of captivity, God sends this word of, of future hope and restoration. Jeremiah here is to make a record of all of his prophecies. The record was for the future. So if Jeremiah, Jeremiah's prophecies concerning the Babylonian captivity came true, then we can count God's word true when it comes to the prophecies that we, we read today that are still yet future coming true as well. You can count on God's word. See, the reliability of the prophecies in the past point to the reliability of God's word now and in the future. Look at verse 2. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. You know, the more you study Scripture, the more uh, sensitive you become to, to certain phrases, certain words, expressions like the days are coming, or in the latter days, or the day of the Lord. They're all signposts pointing to the end of time, a day still in the future. A lot of the promises in these chapters really have yet to be fulfilled. Now, at the time, Judah was about to be taken captive, but their exile would last a generation, 70 years before God moved to regather the Jews to their land. But as we'll see, this was also taking us into the future, and God would restore in the future, not yet, Israel once again to her land. Look at verse 4. Now, these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah, for thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether man is, in ever, is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor, and all faces turn pale? Some of you moms might say it's about time you men know what it's like to give birth, to experience labor pains. Since you're all students of God's word here this evening, I'm sure that you noticed that verse 4 mentioned both Israel and Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had been overrun by the Assyrians more than a hundred years before, yet God was talking about both Israel and Judah. And it's letting us know that the trouble God was discussing wasn't just with the Babylonians. No, he's looking further into the future, and he's talking about a united Israel going through the great tribulation and, and being uh, you know, protected through that. Look at verse 7. Alas, for the, that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is a time of Jacob's trouble but he shall be saved out of it. So we know God's talking about the great tribulation because Jesus also described it like a day of suffering, like a, a day of labor pains. Paul put it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, when he says, For you know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, safety then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they, they shall not escape. Jesus said it would be a time like no other in the history of the world on the earth. And here we see it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Meaning that although it will come to the whole world of men, it is especially designed for the Jewish people to get them to return to their God. Now in the end, God will protect them. Look at verses 8 and 9. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck 
and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Again, that phrase, in that day, refers to the day of the Lord, the, the great tribulation. If you recall, Jeremiah had been wearing also a wooden yoke. I think we looked at the last time together, symbolizing the enslavement of Judah by the nation of Babylon. And remember earlier, one of the prophets you know, took it off of Jeremiah's neck and broke it into pieces and, and, and said, no, that's not what God has said. God said, he's going to protect you. And, and, and God said, no, here's what I said. You're going to die, false prophet. And, and uh, you, you know, the rest of you are going to be taken into Babylon. And that's what happened. But see, God also said at the time he would replace the wooden yoke with an iron one. But here we read that there will be a day when that yoke will be broken. Now, it was partially broken when the Jews returned from Babylon, but not completely and not eternally. True freedom for the Jewish people won't come until Jesus returns. The freedom then will be from the yoke of the Antichrist. Nation of Israel will, will survive the Great Tribulation and be elevated as a chief nation on the earth. Never again will they be persecuted. Never again will they be enslaved by, by other nations. Verse 10 says, Therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dis- be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar, and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. Here's that, that hope. Listen, no things look bad, but I got things under control. And this is when Jesus comes again. Look at verse 11 now. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. But I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. We're told in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 12 that he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. It's clear these verses are about an ultimate outcome, about the future beyond our own times. God's reference to the Jews being scattered not just to Babylon, but to many nations. And he indicates a final judgment upon those nations by saying, I I will make a full end of nations. In the Gospel of Matthew, this judgment is is described for us in in chapter 25 of the second coming of Jesus. You see, the great tribulation is going to be necessary to bring correction to the Jews' injustice. Like the Babylonian invasion and captivity was necessary discipline to bring God's people back in to have them turn from idolatry, so too this great tribulation period that's going to come upon the face of the earth is going to be necessary for the Jews to acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior and recognize that hey, this was the Messiah that we crucified. So the Lord talks in verse 12 about why they were taken captive the first time because of their sin. Look at verse 12 now. For thus says the Lord, your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe, there is no one to plead your cause that you may bound, be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. So why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. I have done these things to you. Therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured, and all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder, and all who prey upon you I will make a prey. These verses make one clear point. Apart from God's intervention to discipline Israel, she would have perished long ago. 
and she would have perished in the future. Israel afflictions that come because of their sins. Sin does cause incurable wounds. There's no human remedy for sin. You can't wash it with soap. You can't bleach it with chlorine bleach like someone trying to bleach emails off of a hard drive. Uh, You can't do that. There's no human remedy for for sin. Romans 6.23 tells us that for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is the only one that can and has dealt with the sin problem. By believing in Him, we can be saved from the penalty of our sins and the wrath to come. And and the same will be true for Israel as they they will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Messiah. So as a result, the Lord says here, despite Judah's idolatry, in the end, the God she forsook is the God who's going to stand by her and heal her. Look at verse 17. For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast, saying, this is Zion, no one seeks her. Listen, we are healed at the cross of Christ. Though God had allowed Judah to be wounded, he would be the one that brings the healing. How would God bring the healing? Isaiah 53. We love that. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Like the story I shared not too long ago about the man who died and went to heaven. Of course, Peter was there and to meet him at the pearly gates. And Peter says, here's how it works. You need 100 points to make it into heaven. You tell me the good things you've done, and I'll give you a certain number of points for each time uh, you did something good, depending how good it was. When you reach 100 points, you win, okay? Okay. He says, well, I was married to the same woman for 50 years and never cheated on her, even in my heart. That's wonderful, says Peter. That's worth three points. Three points, he says. Well, I attended church all my life and supported its ministry with, with my tithe and service. Terrific, says Peter. That's great. That's certainly worth a point. One point, I started a soup kitchen in my city and worked in a shelter for homeless veterans. Fantastic. That's good for two more points. Two points exasperated the man Christ. At this rate, the only way I'll get to heaven is by the grace of God. Bingo. 100 points. Come on in. <laughs> the, the, the healing came at the cross. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He paid for debt that we didn't owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now verse 18. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents, and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound, and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Interesting that the Hebrew word translated for mound is the word tell. And in modern day Israel, you'll find places like uh, uh, Tel Aviv and Tel Dan and, and Tel Megiddo. And, and in ancient times when a city was conquered, the site was cleared and the rubble was used to build the city, you know, build a new city on top of the old mound. And over centuries of tearing down and building up made mounds that are there. And so here Israel will rebuild, uh, return to rebuild up on the ancient tells, it's ancient, ancient mounds, it says there. Verse 19. <coughs> <coughs> Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. And again, he's describing the the gathering of the Jews into the land. Verse 20. Their children also shall be as before and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. Their nobles shall be from among them and their governor shall come from their midst. Now here he predicts I mean, Jews are going to be ruled 
by Jews. Now this is really a very amazing and interesting prophecy. Jewish self-government was represented by capital punishment, their ability to, to have capital punishment. Well, the Romans stripped that uh, freedom away from them and, and, uh, and, and uh, of the Jews of this right in 19 AD. That's why they needed Pilate's approval to crucify Jesus. Here the Lord is saying that the day will come when this will be restored. Now Genesis 49.10, Jacob had told his son Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. The scepter speaks of this self-rule. The term Shiloh refers to the Messiah. So the prophecy predicts the right to self-rule will remain until Messiah appears on the scene. That's why the Romans revoking the right of corporal punishment in 19 AD caused great concern among the rabbis. And their minds are going, God has broken the promise. The scepter has departed. Where's the Messiah? But what they didn't realize was right then and there, the Messiah was working at a carpenter's bench in Nazareth, preparing and waiting for his time. That's also interesting that in verse 21 it says, Their nobles shall be from among them. Their governors shall come from their midst. Then I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach me. For you is this who has pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord. The, the governor was a political ruler. He's going to be a Jew, is what he's saying. But this governor also can approach the Lord. That means he's, he's a priest. And under the, the Old Covenant, there was a separation of offices. Priests were from the tribe of Levi and the kings from Judah. But this one ruler is both king and a royal priest. And as we've studied in past, there's only one that fits that category, and that's Jesus Christ. Verse 22. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. God's mission for Israel in human history was for them to be his people in order to show the other nations, peoples, tribes, and tongues that he is God. Now, they failed. Again and again. But God refused. And God refuses to abandon them or their mission. And so the whirlwind here, in verse 23, speaks of the great tribulation and it will fall violently upon the head of the wicked as God preserves the Jews through those years to bring them to repentance and complete their mission. Verse 24. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until He has done it and until He has performed the intent of His heart. In the latter days, you will consider it. This is just another uh, reiteration of the fact that the Great Tribulation is a time of Jacob's trouble that will come upon the earth. And it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. The Lord will complete it. And then Jeremiah 30 ends with, in the latter days, you will consider it. You will, you will discern what's going on. You will understand what I'm saying. God reminds us that much in this chapter waits until the latter days for its ultimate and true fulfillment. You'll understand it then. Now, there are those that say, well, God has is, is, is cast off Israel as a nation forever and, and all of the blessings and all of the covenants and all the promises that God made to the nation are now fulfilled in the church. That we have become Israel after the Spirit and being spiritual Israel. God has forsaken the nation itself and is now pouring out all the blessings that He had promised Israel through the covenant now upon the church. Now, that teaching creates all sorts of problems as far as your view of eschatology goes because it immediately places the church in the great tribulation period. And we've just read that the Jews will be protected through the tribulation, not from the tribulation, and that it's a time of Jacob's trouble, not the church's trouble. 
See, it's our view and strong conviction that the church will not be in the Great Tribulation inasmuch, again, that the Great Tribulation is a time of God's wrath being poured out upon the world. And the Lord said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I say amen to that. But even more to that, we see that God is not done with the nation of Israel, with the Jewish people. And chapter 31 is just really a continuation of chapter 30. Look at verse 1 now of chapter 31. At the same time, well, what time is that? In the latter days. Again, back to, to verse, 40, uh, verse 24 of chapter 30. In the latter days, you will consider it. At the same time that God restores the nation Israel to a place of divine favors and love, verse 1, the Lord says, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus is the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when I want to give him rest. Now, here's a good example of reading God's word in proper context with other verses. Revelation chapter 12, halfway through the final period of judgment that we call God the Great Tribulation, a ruler called the Antichrist will turn on the Jews and Jerusalem. He's going to invade their land. The Jews and Jerusalem will flee, and many believe to, to Petra, the rock city there, in the, in the wilderness, as it says there in verse 2. Revelation 12, 12 and Micah 2, 12 speak about this. Their God will provide and protect uh, his people until the judgment is over and rest has come to Israel. And here Jeremiah comments on this future episode. He speaks very specifically. The Jews will find grace in the wilderness. And it, it's possible that they're in that desert hideout. They'll reflect on the mistake that they, they, they made in you know allowing or, or believing that the Antichrist is their Messiah. And what a mistake that they made rejecting the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, maybe in that place ago. Now we know. Zechariah 12.10 tells us that they will look on him who they pierced. Hosea 5.15 says, God predicts that they will seek my face in their affliction. They will diligently seek me. One day during the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel will repent and they will look to Jesus and they'll be saved by grace. Now verse 3. I love it. You might want to underline it, highlight it, memorize it. Verse 3. The Lord has appeared of old to me saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Don't you love that verse? Uh, that's awesome. I mean, if it were not for God's everlasting love, none of us would be saved. It's His loving kindness that, that, that woos us, that entices us, that draws us to Him. In fact, 1 John 4.19 tells us we love Him because He first loved us. We're saved because God is love, not because we're so lovable. If God stopped loving us, we wouldn't have a leg to stand on. We'd be doomed for hell forever. But we have nothing to fear. His love for you and me is an everlasting love. There's a story about a man in Wells who sought to win the affection of a certain lady for 42 years before she finally said yes. The couple, both 74 years old, recently became Mr. and Mrs. For more than 40 years, the persistent but rather shy man slipped a weekly love letter under his neighbor's door, but she continually refused to speak to him and mend the spat that had parted them many years before. After writing 2,184 love letters... Without ever getting a spoken or written answer, the single-hearted uh, old man eventually summoned up enough courage to present himself in person. He knocked on the door of the reluctant lady and asked her for her hand. To his delight and surprise, she accepted. I mean, 42 years. He did not give up. I mean, that's, a, that's an everlasting love there, I think. 
God's love is everlasting. He doesn't give up on us. With loving kindness, He has drawn us to Him. Verse 4. Again, I will build you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines and and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. Now this really has some current political ramifications. Today, Samaria is the West Bank. You know, we read of rockets often being fired toward Jerusalem only to be blown out of the sky in the, in the West Bank. Recently, the Trump administration announced that it will now recognize the Golan Heights as Israel-controlled and no longer refers to Gaza and the West Bank as Israel-occupied territory, but Israeli-controlled. I like that. Here, we're told that there will come a time when Israel will plant vineyards on Samaria's mountains and As far as I know, there's vineyards planted by Israeli settlers just as Jeremiah predicted there would be. Verse 6. For there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations, Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Now the immediate reference is to Judah's return to Babylon. But the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy will take place in the kingdom age when all of God's people will join together in worshiping Him. Verse 8. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child. Together a great throng shall return there. So Jeremiah foresees this mass of return of Jews to the land of Israel. And we know that's happening even in our day today. In fact, the most recent wave of immigration did come from the North Country. From 1989 to 2006, nearly a million Jews from Russia and the former Soviet Union immigrated to Israel. The Jewish state ended up assimilating a 20% increase in population. It was an amazing feat. Jeremiah continues, verse 9. They shall come with weeping and with supplications. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim is short for the ten northern tribes that comprised Israel when the nation split. And and really this restoration of Israel looks beyond our own time to the time of the kingdom of God upon the earth. After the church age, after the seven-year great tribulation at the return of Jesus Christ in in the second coming, And I really do believe this prophecy foreshadows an even greater influx of Jewish immigration, one that's yet to occur, occurs in still future. When Jesus turns to the earth, returns to the earth, mourning and repentant Jews from all over the world will return to to Israel. Today there are 14.7 million Jews in the world, yet less than half, 6.5 million, live in Israel. When Jesus returns... He'll send out his searchers to hunt down the Jews and return all of them to the land. Mark 13, 27 says this, And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Listen, don't let anyone ever convince you that God is done with the nation of Israel. It is certain to happen and God's everlasting love will continue to draw Israel throughout human history into the promised kingdom. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. God's promise. He says, proclaim it, declare it. All you isles, islands from afar off, scatter them. I'm going to bring them back again. Verse 11. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. 
Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil. For the young of the flock and the herd, their soul shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. That glorious day when they're received again and joined into God and to His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 15, Thus says the Lord, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. Now this is a prophecy that, that, that's part of our Christmas story. It's quoted in Matthew 2.18. Ramah was near Bethlehem, which where Rachel was buried. Its women were considered her daughters. When Herod killed the babies of Bethlehem to eliminate the Messiah, this verse, uh, verse really describes uh, the reaction of these, la- these ladies. They wept for their children. But in Jeremiah's day, Ramah was a staging area for Nebuchadnezzar. It's where he processed Jews to be taken back to Babylon. And so here Rachel the mother of the nation is mourning for the exiles taken to Babylon. Yet God speaks to Rachel. Look at verse 16. Therefore, or thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. Just as this promise of hope, verse 18, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. Again, Another name for, for Israel. You have chastised me and I was chastised. Like an untrained bull, restore me and I will return. For you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Set up signposts, make landmarks, set your heart towards the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel, turn back to these cities. How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. So here, God's discipline was very necessary. And in the case of Israel, it would prove effective in bringing about repentance. No matter how far they strayed, no matter how grave their sin was, in His everlasting love, God always drew them back, and He will in the future draw them back to Himself. Now the next four verses say the same thing about the southern kingdom of Judah. Verse 23, Thus is the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. They shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities when I bring back their captivity. The Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness. And there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all the cities together, farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have satiated, satiated their, their weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. After this I awoke and looked around and my sleep was sweet to me. So despite their idolatry, their harlotry, their oppression of the poor, their injustices, their child sacrifices, God's going to draw them back with His everlasting love. Now it seems that some of this chapter may have been given to Jeremiah in a dream and now he wakes up and he, and he thinks about what he dreamed and, and he says these things have brought Jeremiah peace. You know, sometimes we dream about things and I think they bring us worry. You know, I had a dream and I, you know, I dreamed this and that and you wake up all worried and freaked out. Well, well, not for Jeremiah. He knew that this was of the Lord. Verse 27. 
Behold, the day, days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that I, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to flick so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. Now, if you go back to Jeremiah chapter 1, where God is calling Jeremiah to his prophetic ministry, the Lord said to Jeremiah there, he says, I, See, I've set you over the nations and over, over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. So it was to prophesy of their coming destruction, of the, to, to build down and, and what was going to come upon the people. But now we get to the point where God declares, now I've watched over them, I've plucked them and break them down, throw them down, destroy them. Now it's time to talk about building them up and planting, says the Lord. So we read of God's restoration with the nation of Israel. Verse 29. And those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That was a, a popular proverb at the time. Well, the reason I've got this evil taste in my mouth is because my parents sucked on sour grapes. Or, or the reason I'm evil, the reason I'm like I am is because of my parents. No, it's just blame shifting. It's all their fault, you know. And, and the parents go, well, it's not my fault, it's my parents' fault. Yeah, well, my parents' parents' fault. And if they were, you know, they didn't, they, you know, and they're just going over and over again. Now, people no longer quote that proverb, but that doesn't mean they don't live by it. I think parents get a bum deal. All of our dysfunctions and all of our, our deficiencies are blamed on, on parenting and, and those who raised us. They got this not so fast. He says, you're responsible for your own sin. Look at verse 30. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Again, the Jews had resigned themselves to a philosophy that God punished the children for the sins of their fathers, so they might as well keep on sinning. You know, it's like, well, you know, it's not my fault. You know, it's their fault, so we might as well keep on sinning. You know, all of this is making excuses to sin. You know, the modern equivalent is to, to call sin something else other than sin. You know, it's called it a, a syndrome or, a, or, you know, I have this problem. You know, it's not my fault. But it says be careful because each one of us must answer to God for our own lives. We, we are all without an excuse. But the Lord says no more will the children be punished for the sins of the fathers. There's, there's a new beginning. A new chapter, new covenant. Look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was the husband of them, says the Lord. So this is going to be a completely different covenant than the old one. Remember, a covenant establishes the terms of a relationship. Whenever God wants a relationship with mankind, He makes a covenant. The parties that enter that relationship, they do so by agreeing to the terms of the covenant. So when God brought the, the children of Israel out of Egypt to be His own, He ushered them to Mount Sinai, where He gave them the terms, gave them the commandments, cleansing, uh, you know, or a system of sacrifice, consequences, blessings and curses. There are 613 commandments regarding morality and civics and ceremony. But the people still sinned. Still broke the commandments, and then God, you know, He constructed a, a sacrificial system to cover their sin. And this concluded, you know, in sacrificial priests, uh, even a temple to present their offerings, provide added motivation to keep the law God gave to them a series of blessings and cursings. Well, if you do this, then I'll bless you. If you do, if you do that, then you're going to be cursed. But the sad history is that they failed all the way around. They failed to live up to the old covenant. 
And the desperate condition they faced at the time of Jeremiah were exactly what God predicted. Yet in the wake of their failure, God doesn't leave them hopeless. He still wants a relationship with the Jews, so he promises new terms, a new covenant. Through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, God promises new covenant, yet it wouldn't be activated for 600 years. For just as the old covenant was ratified by blood, so was the new. Think about this. The night before Jesus was crucified, he took the cup. And he said in Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. On the cross, Jesus did far more than gain our forgiveness. He created for us a new way to relate to God. New terms of this relationship with him because the old had soured. See, in verse 32, God compares himself to a heartbroken husband whose wife had been unfaithful. But the, the new covenant is as much relief to God as is the revival in us. What Jesus did was monumental. Here, here it is, verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Old covenant we know consisted of laws written on stone tablets. Nothing wrong with the law that God gave to Moses. The law of God was perfect. The law didn't fail the Jews. It was the Jews who failed to keep the law. But see, that's the problem. The problem was the law was written on stone tablets. And stone tablets, they could be neglected, they could be tossed to one side, forgotten, misunderstood, misapplied, taken out of context. They could even serve to discourage us rather than encourage us. But not the new covenant. Rather than write his law on, on the stone tablets, God writes his intentions and, 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 and in our minds and hearts. He, he puts in us the desire to obey, the desire to love him. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. The old covenant was too dependent upon human willpower. Oh, I can do this, I can do that. With the new covenant, it's God working in and through our lives. Our only part is faith, believing in God. The old covenant, the law told men what to do, but didn't give them the power to do it. The new covenant, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live for the Lord. Verse 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. I mean, no more. Oh man, you got to know the Lord. Hey, you really got to know. You got to know. At that time, everybody's going to know the Lord. It's, it's going to be awesome. See, under the new covenant, we have a personal, intimate relationship with God. We no longer need a, a priest or intermediary to teach us about God. Under the new covenant, we can experience God firsthand. Every Christian has a backstage pass to God. Why? Because our sin has been dealt with upon the cross. Jesus paid that price for us. And when he said, it is finished, to tell us that I paid in full, you no longer have to pay it. That's why the Lord promises, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. In other words, God's forgiveness, it's complete forgiveness. There's no such thing as partial forgiveness. You know, the Bible says if we confess our sins, God will forgive. His forgiveness is complete. He wipes the slate clean. When God buries our sin, He buries it into the deepest sea and He posts a sign that reads, No fishing. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. I read a story 
about a young woman. One night she was at church service and she felt the Holy Spirit tugging on her heart. And so she, she responded to God's call and she accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and her Savior. And this young woman had a very, very rough past involving alcohol and drugs and, and prostitution. But the change in her was evident. As time went on, she became faithful member of the church. She eventually became involved in, in ministry, teaching young children. It wasn't very long until this faithful young woman had caught the eye in the heart of the pastor's son. The relationship grew and they began to make wedding plans and this is where the problem began. See, about half the church didn't think that a woman with a past such as hers was suitable for the pastor's son. And the church began to argue and to fight about the matter. So they decided to have a meeting. And as the people made their arguments and tensions increased, the meeting got completely out of hand. The young woman became very upset about all the things being brought up about her past. And she began to cry. And the pastor's son stood to speak. He could not bear the pain it was causing him or causing his future wife to begin. He began to speak and his statement was this. My fiancé's past is not what is on trial here. What you are questioning is the ability of the blood of Jesus to wash away sin. Today, you have put the blood of Jesus on trial. So does it wash away sin or not? I, I like that story. Too often, even as Christians, we bring up the past and we use it against our brothers and our sisters. You know, oh, they did this and they did that. Forgiveness is a very foundational part of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If the blood of Jesus does not cleanse the other person completely, then it, cannot, then it cannot cleanse us completely. And if that's the case, we're all in a lot of trouble. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Verse 35. Thus is the Lord. Who gives the sun for a light by day? The ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night. Who disturbs the sea and its waves roar? The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, Israel's national survival is as certain as the sunrise. God has committed to the, the Jewish people. The church hasn't replaced Israel. Because as I see it, the sun still gives light by day. The moon is still giving us light at night. The waves are still roaring. God is not done with the nation of Israel. Verse 37. Thus is the Lord. If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Again, can't measure heaven. God will not abandon Israel. Verse 38. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built for the Lord. From the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, the surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill Garib. Then it shall turn towards Goath. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down any more forever. Here Jeremiah predicts the rebuilding of Jerusalem and he provides a surveyor's description, the boundaries. This is how it's going to be. Now this is vital. Again, the folks who deny God's promises to Israel like to spiritualize them and they, they like to, to apply them to the church. But that's not what Jeremiah is doing here. He's giving us the physical layout uh, of, the, of the city. God is sending a message. He promises to Israel that it should be taken literally. Don't spiritualize them. And speaking of Jerusalem in verse 40 ends, it shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore. Again, here's the reason why this passage speaks of future events. After Nehemiah rebuilt Jerusalem, it didn't last forever. You know, it, it got destroyed in, in 70 A.D. 
But here the Lord says it shall never be thrown down. Obviously referring to uh, Jerusalem, Jesus will build his kingdom, reign there. Jesus will, 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 or Jerusalem rather, will be the capital not just of Israel, but of the whole world at the return of Jesus. You know, as we close, a major benefit of the new covenant is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Right now, today, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit, his everlasting love, just to fill us with himself and, and keep on filling us. And, and, and you can live the Christian life, and when you consider you have immediate access to the throne of God, now we have the power to please, Lord, please the Lord in how we live. And we just want to love him back. After you see all that he's done for us, we just want to love him back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord. We thank you for the promise of your return. Lord, I, I even say, even so, Lord, come quickly. Lord, we recognize the evilness in our world today. And we recognize the only hope is in your Son, Jesus Christ. The new covenant that you sent your Son to die for each one of us. That through the shedding of blood we have the forgiveness of our sins. Complete forgiveness, not partial forgiveness. Lord, when we die, we don't have to go to a place called purgatory and pay for any of our sins. When, when you died on the cross, you said, it is finished, it is complete, paid in full. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you look on us now and you see your son's righteousness. You don't see our sin. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sin. Thank you for the hope of heaven. Thank you for this time tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.